Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide use GEP software to transform their procurement and supply chain operations. Why? GEP software, built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, helps businesses achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness. GEP software helps companies drive real digital transformation and achieve amazing results. GEP.com Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Russia's leaders seemingly thought that locking up returned opposition figure Alexei Navalny in a notoriously brutal prison would put him out of sight and out of mind. More than a week into his hunger strike, he's proving them very wrong. And the spoken word performance art known as slam poetry has come a long way from its beginnings in 1980 Chicago. Now it gives a window into and some release from the violence and fraught politics in the Democratic Republic of Congo. First up, though. Attention, attention. This is a police message. The crowd should disperse immediately as force is about to be used against violent individuals. The violence on the streets of Northern Ireland this week is the worst seen in years. The unrest has largely come from unionist or loyalist factions, those in favor of unity with Great Britain or loyal to its crown. Night after night, mobs have targeted police officers with bricks and Molotov cocktails. More than 50 officers have been injured. Politicians, including the country's leader, First Minister Arlene Foster of the Democratic Unionist Party, held an emergency meeting yesterday calling for calm. The injury to frontline officers Victims terrorized, damage to people's property, the harm to Northern Ireland's image in this our centenary year has taken us backwards. And no brick, no bottle, no petrol bomb thrown has achieved or can ever achieve anything but destruction, harm and fear. The scale of that destruction, harm and fear has brought it to international attention, prompting a statement from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. We are concerned by the violence in Northern Ireland, and we join the British, Irish, and Northern Irish leaders in their calls for calm. Rioting on Northern Ireland's streets is uncomfortably familiar, with roots in sectarian divides that go back centuries. In 1998, the Good Friday Agreement devolved the government and put an end to the decades of brutal clashes known as the Troubles. What's happening now is fueled by more recent events and represents a pointed threat to that hard-won peace. Really, we've had several nights of pretty consistent and quite serious violence across Northern Ireland. This has been going on for more than a week now. It has spread from Londonderry to Belfast to some of the the, uh, smaller provincial towns like Ballymena, Carrickfergus, etc. Sam McBride writes about Northern Ireland for The Economist and is based in Belfast. 
Last night, I, I was in West Belfast. Really, most public transport across Belfast was cancelled yesterday. There had been a bus burned out on the previous evening. Police last night used water cannon for the first time in, I think, six years in Northern Ireland. Police will feel, I think, last night that they've largely contained this for now. But it is something which the longer it goes on in Northern Ireland, history suggests, the harder it is to shift. And so you say it's a, a number of different groups out on the street. I mean, who are the rioters? Most of the rioters over the last week or so have been loyalists. These are people who are loyal to Britain. They want Northern Ireland to remain part of the United Kingdom. Most of these rioters are really young people, very young people in some cases, as young as 12, the police have said. But often, really, these young people are being urged on by older paramilitary bosses, people whose influence really stems from latching onto emotive political events to give them cover. But as for the current violence, I mean, what is it that the loyalists in particular are angry about? There really are two things here. The catalyst for this trouble um, over recent days was a decision last week by the Public Prosecution Service in Northern Ireland not to bring any criminal charges against something like 2,000 people who had gathered last June for a funeral of a major IRA figure, the IRA's Director of Intelligence. And it was attended by the leadership of the main Republican Party in Northern Ireland, Sinn Féin. This was at a time of lockdown, public health advice, which Sinn Féin, as part of the government here, had endorsed was saying that funerals should have no more than 10 people. So there was great anger at this, particularly among unionists. And the fact that the police had been revealed last week to have been involved in some sort of negotiation with Sinn Féin before this event led to all of the unionist parties in Northern Ireland calling for the chief constable of the police service of Northern Ireland to resign. That's something that he refused to do. But the second thing here really is Brexit. How so? How does Brexit figure into this? Well, really, it is the cause of much of the underlying loyalist anger from the start of this year. Many loyalists voted for Brexit. They wanted Brexit. They thought that it might lead to a border on the island of Ireland. It might make the border that currently exists a bit harder, a bit more obvious. They never really thought that it would lead to a border in the Irish Sea that cuts Northern Ireland off to a certain extent from the rest of the UK. So making Northern Ireland a little bit less British. That was what Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, agreed to. That is something which, even though he he reassured them he would never do, he ultimately came to accept as the price of Brexit for the rest of the UK. And so therefore, there is a very keen sense of betrayal from some of these people. Some loyalists think that really violence might make Boris Johnson and the European Union reconsider what they've done. But the British government and the EU have been really very clear that the Irish sea border is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. And so in some ways, Northern Ireland, I think, has become a sort of proxy for the ideological arguments of these two big powerful blocs. And Northern Ireland often really seems to get caught in the middle in a way which is, I really think, quite dangerous because of the instability of this society. But if Northern Ireland is is now the sort of proxy battleground for, for something that's fundamentally settled between Britain and the EU, what can the political leaders of Northern Ireland do to calm this tension? So really, at the moment, we're hearing much condemnation of this from across the political spectrum. And that's very important, but it can also be pretty formulaic. We've been here many times before in Northern Ireland. And I think one of the problems here is that our current crop of politicians in Northern Ireland, particularly on the unionist side, have far less credibility, really, with some of these people in particular than their predecessors had. And so their attempts here to try to dissuade people from violence don't carry the same weight. And so unionists, I think, in many cases, feel that they're 
leaders have failed politically um, to protect Northern Ireland's link with Britain in the Brexit negotiations. And they're therefore less forgiving and less accepting, I think, of unionist leaders turning to them and saying, look, don't you worry about this. Don't go onto the streets. We have a clever plan. We will sort this out with politics. But as you say, this this is just the latest flashpoint, the latest reason for violence to erupt in what, what seems like a decades-long, centuries-long conflict. It is, and it's not just about the politics that we've been talking about. Um, it's not even just about religious disputes. It's not just about Catholics and Protestants. It's ultimately about identity. It's about a fear of the other side, often a hatred of the other side in many cases. I mean, if you think about how divided America is at the moment between the left and the right, take that and multiply it by several hundred years and you get a sense of what's involved here. And I think one of the striking things here is that there is an element of logic to some of the fear of people in these communities in Northern Ireland. At various points in history, one side in this conflict or the other has had dominance. And in many of those instances, there have been really barbaric atrocities. And so therefore, people here have very long memories. Some of those fears are irrational, but they're not all irrational. Well, with things being as deep-seated as they are then, and given some of the helplessness that people feel, what is it that will stop the fighting this time? That's a very difficult question to answer. Really, a major problem here is that Northern Ireland is still a very compartmentalised society. It's very segregated. People often go to different schools, which are really split by religious affiliation. They may go to different leisure centres. They may use completely different facilities for most of their social lives. And I think that while the Good Friday Agreement in 1998 was very successful at ending the troubles, the decades of near civil war in Northern Ireland, it really failed to either deliver good government or crucially to deliver reconciliation in some of these parts of Northern Ireland's most deprived neighbourhoods. And so therefore, we still have a situation where people genuinely do hate each other. Sam, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide use GEP software to transform their procurement and supply chain operations. Why? GEP software, built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, helps businesses achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness. GEP software helps companies drive real digital transformation and achieve amazing results. GEP.com 
And tell me about the, the, the conditions he's being held in. You say it's a notorious prison. It's a kind of a jail where if your hat is sat in the wrong way, uh, if you look at the guard in the wrong way, or if one of your buttons gets undone, it immediately warrants special measures and time in the punishment room. So it's it's a harsh prison, and it's also the one where Alexei Navalny has been denied proper medical care. And on top of all that, he is effectively being tortured through sleep deprivation. Although he returned voluntarily, he's been labeled as inclined to flee, which means that a prison guard can come up to him every hour of the night and shine a torch in his face. So he is exhausted. He is suffering uh, great pain. And this is something that Amnesty International and Anya Kalamai's incoming new boss has raised great concern about and has written to Vladimir Putin. In my view, Russia, the Russian authorities, may be placing him into a situation of a slow death and may be seeking to hide uh, what is being done to him. And as for these reports of Mr. Navalny's condition, what has the Kremlin said? The Kremlin officially doesn't really acknowledge any of this. So Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin's spokesperson, said Navalny would be treated appropriately like any other prisoners if ill, but he declined to comment on his condition. But in trying to contain Alexei Navalny's impact and trying to bring down his moral superiority, if you like. The Kremlin, instead of a doctor, had sent a propaganda TV crew headed by Maria Butina, who was an ex-convict in a U.S. prison for her conspiracy to influence the 2016 U.S. elections. Maria Butina has strolled into Navalny's prison dormitory or barrack accompanied by a cameraman, yelled at Navalny that the conditions are better than the hotel in a small town in Siberia where she grew up. And a few days later, after Butina's visit, Alexei Navalny's Doctor and close ally Anastasia Vasilieva went to the gates of the penal colony, also accompanied by some journalists, demanding access to her patient. She was promptly detained. So the Kremlin's commentary is really in its actions. I mean, that picture of Butina on Russian networks taunting Navalny and his doctor being detained, that tells you a lot about what the Kremlin thinks about the situation. But what does it hope to achieve exactly in, in doing it in, in such such a taunting way? It tries to de-heroicize, delegitimize Navalny, to ridicule his hunger strike, to portray as somebody who's demanding special conditions, to portray him as somebody who is just pretending who is in this privileged sanatorium rather than in a penal colony. It's trying to bring him down from the moral high ground which Navalny has at the moment. And in a way, nothing to me in this story encapsulates 
the essence of the Kremlin cynicism and the standing of Navalny than the tactics used by the prison to ridicule his hunger strike. What the prison governor has done is to plant sweets in Navalny's clothes, and this is after a week of a hardcore hunger strike. And he brought in an electric stove into the barrack, telling the prisoners to grill chicken and to grill bread next to him. But Alexei Navalny has managed to get a message out. Uh, As he described it, it's a battle between human spirit and human dignity on the one hand and the prison's grilled chicken on the other. And as he said, it's not just for his own rights that he is on hunger strike and it's not just his own rights he is fighting for, but the rights of all those thousands and tens of thousands of Russian prisoners whose names are not known and are not mentioned by the world leaders in their statements, who will simply perish there if nobody stands for them. But seeing how it's gone this far, does it really serve the Kremlin's interests simply to let him die in prison? No, it doesn't. He's already earned his place in history, and this is the Kremlin's worst nightmare because fighting a real person, trying to poison or kill him is one thing. Fighting a hero who's entered history is much, much harder. Arkady, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. In 1984, a former builder named Mark Kelly Smith hosted the world's first poetry slam at the Get Me High Lounge in Chicago. The art form soon found a following and has since spread far and wide. I recently spent a Saturday morning in a small, dimly lit room in Goma, which is a city in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo, where I'm based. Olivia Ackland writes for The Economist. There was a group of Congolese slammers. Slam is basically spoken word poetry. And they slammed about everything from politics to art to social issues. They would move around the room, towering over the seated members of the audience, gesticulating wildly. And the audience, in turn, would occasionally join in by repeating refrains or clapping. And so what were the proceedings like? Is this like a poetry slam I might see in America? I imagine it would be quite similar to a slam event that you might attend in America. Slam was really invented to pull rhymes off pages and make them more accessible and lively. And the slammers battle, a bit like rappers battle, but it's the audience that judges them. So the audience give marks out of 10 at the end of performances. And when did slamming arrive in the Congo? So slamming first reached Eastern Congo five years ago when a handful of young men started watching YouTube videos of slammers across the world. And it wasn't long before more than 100 people were calling themselves slammers. They clubbed together to rent a brick house And they practiced there every Saturday. And the best amongst them often put on shows in Goma's bars and restaurants. And so what sort of themes are explored? You said it's a little bit of everything. It is a little bit of everything. I mean, some of the slams reflect the context of Eastern Congo. Goma has been surrounded by warring armed groups for 20 years. People in the region are regularly slaughtered by rebels with machetes and guns. 
And women are often terrorised by rape. Rape is often used as a weapon of war. But it's not all about violence and social injustice. For example, one of the performers, this woman called Rita Zaburi, was asked by her friends what it means to be a poet. And she decided to respond in slam. She said it's not about being a sorcerer, healing wounds with the magic of your creativity. It's about denouncing the evils that swallow our society. In fact, Goma's slammers do a bit of both. Rita, along with four other female slammers, help women who've been raped or beaten with slamotherapy workshops once a week. Some of the women have been attacked by rebels, some of them have been attacked by their husbands. And the slammers teach the women to write about their experiences and express themselves through slam. And do they find that it helps as a, as a sort of therapeutic exercise? I think it does help somewhat. For example, I spoke to one of the women, Deborah, who was forced to marry a man when she was age 15, and he used to come home and beat her up most nights. And she eventually escaped and was being helped by an NGO in Goma, Don Bosco. And she performed in Swahili about what the support group means to her. So the support group with the other women, also at Don Bosco and the female slammers. She said, I love you, you respect me, we give each other advice and we're working together to build a community. And then everyone sang together. And given the backdrop of war and conflict that that you described, does the political element of this go beyond poetry? Yeah, so it just so happens that the four men who established the slam scene in Goma are also some of the city's most prominent activists. And so, for example, one of Goma's first slammers, a guy called Ben Kamuntu, told me that he wrote some of his best slam behind bars when he was in prison after being locked up for protesting over former President Joseph Kabila's refusal to leave power. But he also wanted to express that Islam's about more than just airing anger and frustration over the state of the country. Les jeunes parlent aussi des des histoires qui se passent dans leur quartier, dans leurs avenues. He said that people also write about the stories that happen in their neighborhoods. They recount love stories, they tell jokes, and uh, they describe funny evenings at the table with the family. In Goma, a lot of the basic services that should be there are not provided by the state. And Ben was saying that in spite of all the problems, there's still life in Goma. And even if there's no electricity in a street, there's life in that street. And there's a joy at being alive that should be expressed. Thanks very much for joining us, Olivia. Thanks, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Kim Gittleson. Our senior producers are Chris Inpey, Hannah Mourinho, and Sam Colbert. Our producers are Stevie Hertz and William Warren, and assistant producer Jason Hoskin. 
Our sound engineer is Daniel Lloyd Evans, and our trainee is Abisoye Oshindairo. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Can supply chains be more sustainable without losing performance, efficiency, and resilience? It's possible with GEP. With strategy-managed services and AI-powered software, GEP helps hundreds of market-leading companies build sustainable supply chains that are cleaner, greener, and highly effective. Supply chains that are good for the planet and good for your business. GEP. Software. Strategy. Managed services. GEP.com.